This episode features discussions of torture and death that some may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. On March 26, 2010, a South Korean Navy vessel called the Chonan was stationed along the northern limit line in the Yellow Sea. The line was a disputed boundary between the waters of North and South Korea. For many years, the North had refused to recognize the sovereign waters of the South, claiming that the South Korean Navy was violating their own territory. But the animosity between the two Koreas had rarely gone past strongly worded public statements. That all changed on the 26th at exactly 9.22 p.m., when an explosion rocked the Chonan. Moments later, the ship broke in two, sinking to the seafloor with 46 crew members on board. When the wreck of the Chonan was raised three weeks later, the investigators discovered something alarming. The propeller and steering system of a torpedo. A torpedo that had been built in North Korea. The Chonan had been sunk in a deliberate attack. For the first time, Kim Jong-il had committed an act of war. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. This season, we're looking at the Kim family's communist dynasty in North Korea. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're exploring the nearly 20-year reign of Kim Jong-il, the second of the Kim dynasty. Last week, we followed Kim Jong-il's upbringing and development as a dictator before he officially succeeded his father. Next week, we'll continue our series with a look at Kim Jong-il's successor, his son, Kim Jong-un. Long before the attack on the Chonin in 2010, Kim Jong-il was flexing his military might to the world. When he officially took control of North Korea after his father's death in 1994, Kim Jong-il set out to build a completely militarized society. To maintain the strength of his new dictatorship, he had to be seen as the powerful leader. He had been handed the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, by his father. But Kim Il-sung had been a hero who repelled the Japanese and held off the Americans during the Korean War. His son had no war to heroically command and no foreign invader to repel. So he made one up. His propaganda focused mainly on the constant fictional threat posed by South Korea and the U.S. But beyond those two old enemies, Kim Jong-il portrayed the whole world as an enemy. And to sell the narrative, he made some updates to his father's original concept of Juche, or national self-reliance. Kim Jong-il used his propaganda machine to convince the people that their self-reliance started with self-defense. And at the time he took over, there were two key obstacles to achieving this. The first was the decline of communism in the region. 
North Korea, for all its propaganda to the contrary, had always relied on Soviet supplies. From manufacturing materials to weapons, the USSR had been North Korea's primary trade partner. After the Soviet Union fell in 1991, North Korea was forced to turn to China, the only other communist-friendly government in the region. However, China was not nearly as willing to trade. By the early 1990s, North Korea's infrastructure was crumbling from the lack of imported materials. The second obstacle to self-reliance was a terrible famine that struck North Korea in 1994, right as Kim Jong-il was taking power. Poor planning and farming tactics had led to massive soil erosion on the farms in the northern mountains. In 1995, the region was inundated with rain, washing away the soil and crops. The communal farms missed several harvests, and the entire country suffered from food shortages. Between the famine and the lack of trade, Kim Jong-il had his hands full. But he stubbornly refused to change the script his family had been writing for decades. Instead, he ignored the hunger spreading through the country and doubled down on his plan for militarization. Conscription was made mandatory for all teenage males. Kim Jong-il deployed nearly 70% of his army along the demilitarized zone bordering South Korea. For the record, South Korea had displayed no aggression in decades. Their military had been supported by the United States since the days of the Korean War, but the American presence along the DMZ was in fact decreasing. South Korea was in no way preparing for war. In an ironic similarity to its communist neighbor, South Korea had also turned inward in the decades since the war. But the South had chosen to invest in infrastructure and economic developments instead of a military buildup. By the 1990s, their economy was booming thanks to technology exports, and they had better things to do with their GDP than attack the North. But Kim Jong-il's propaganda continued to paint a combined American and South Korean invasion as the greatest danger to North Koreans. That narrative fed into his policies of conscription and deployment to the southern border. In effect, Jong-il was pulling a simple sleight of hand, distracting the people with a warmongering panic while he consolidated his power. This is a classic tactic of strongmen and dictators. Keep the population afraid of outside threats, and they'll avoid examining the massive domestic issues that the dictator is unable or unwilling to address. Like rampant starvation, the North Korean government sent out propaganda encouraging citizens to have only two meals a day. Then, government food shipments to the mountain villages in the north quietly stopped. Kim Jong-il still publicly maintained that nothing was wrong with the food supply in North Korea. Meanwhile, starved corpses were literally lying in the streets. But in September 1995, Kim Jong-il swallowed his pride and made an international appeal for help. He told his diplomats to quietly inform other governments and aid organizations of the famine. This was an incredible move by the dictator, who was staunchly isolationist. It went directly against the narrative of North Korea's self-reliance. Instead, Kim Jong-il was turning to his enemies for help, 
a risky bid that could be seen as weakness if his citizens found out. Which made many governments suspicious. He found few nations willing to send aid workers and food shipments without proof that the so-called famine wasn't a scam. So the United Nations commissioned a survey of the country's food supplies, and what they found was shocking. North Korean farms could only meet about half of the required demand for the population. North Korea was decidedly not self-reliant. In addition to the United Nations, several non-government organizations, or NGOs, set up operations in Pyongyang to bring in emergency food supplies. It didn't take long for them to come up against Kim Jong-il's massive propaganda machine. When NGO workers would drive into a city with food shipments, they would find that only Communist Party officials were there to receive the handouts. The normal citizens were told to stay indoors. There was no evidence of the corpses in the streets, the widespread begging, or the emaciated children anywhere. They had all been removed while the foreign visitors were around. It was as though Kim Jong-il believed that if the NGO workers didn't see them, they wouldn't know the horrors existed. He was myopically trying to treat the international aid workers like he treated his own people. But it didn't have the same effect. The aid workers saw through his hide-and-seek ruse, and they were equally frustrated by the blatant lies Kim Jong-il was shilling about them. The North Korean authorities, who were present at all times alongside the aid workers, would tell citizens that the ultimate goal of the NGOs was to undermine their communist ideals. They encouraged the very people receiving food to be wary of the people providing it. Kim Jong-il went one step further when Japan shipped 450,000 tons of grain to North Korea. Instead of acknowledging the aid shipment for what it was, his propaganda claimed that Japan was sending food as an atonement for its past colonial rule over Korea. Meanwhile, much of the grain that was coming in was siphoned directly into the army supply and never reached the general population at all. South Korea followed Japan's example by sending another 150,000 tons of rice and grain. Kim Jong-il claimed he had connived North Korea's enemies into refilling their supplies for them. Then, he used the alleged weakness South Korea had shown to justify new espionage missions against them. He dispatched submarines to sit off the southern coast and monitor South Korean radio and naval activities. It didn't take long for something to go wrong. In 1996, one of Kim Jong-il's submarines ran aground off the coast of South Korea. When the South Korean government discovered this, they responded with a brutal shift in aid policies. Not only did they stop sending food to the North, they lobbied other international governments to stop their aid as well. They made it clear that if Kim Jong-il was going to respond to kindness with deception, it would have consequences. This only ratcheted up the political tension in the region. Kim Jong-il was rattling the saber of his military might, and when his enemies responded with sanctions, it gave credence to his propaganda. But while Kim Jong-il was pretending to play the game of international espionage, his citizens were still starving. People had to forage for edible plants and roots to eat. Women tried to avoid getting pregnant and having another mouth to feed. Families who couldn't feed elderly members abandoned them. 
parents who couldn't feed their children did the same. Thievery became rampant. There were even whispered rumors of cannibalism in the most isolated communities. North Korea seemed ready to crumble upon itself as another failed communist state. Then, in 1998, the situation began to improve. A new regime took over in South Korea, and the new government brought back aid shipments to the North. And finally, after three disappointing seasons, there was a bountiful harvest in North Korea that year. By the time it was all over that summer, South Korean sources reported that the North had tallied the famine's death toll at almost 3 million, over 10% of the population. Kim Jong-il had proved himself to be an incompetent manager of domestic resources. And after the weakness of his country's infrastructure was revealed by the famine, he needed to re-establish his power with a flagrant act of military might. He had to remind his people who their true enemies were. So, he fired a cruise missile at Japan. Coming up, Kim Jong-il falls from a mighty communist leader to a cloistered, fearful hedonist. Now, back to the story. By 1998, Kim Jong-il had twisted his father's national ethos of self-reliance into one driven by self-defense. He used propaganda to scare the population with imaginary threats of foreign invasion. That fear justified his massive buildup of the military, including the test of a new ballistic missile. On September 1st, 1998, Kim Jong-il fired the ballistic missile over Japan. While the missile splashed down harmlessly in the Sea of Japan, it earned him a strong rebuke from the Japanese government. Kim Jong-il used the launch as another propaganda opportunity and another distraction to keep the people from questioning his power. At the time, North Korea was in talks with the United Nations about curbing its budding nuclear program to avoid sanctions, which would include restrictions on trade and foreign aid. These sanctions would have weakened Kim Jong-il's reputation, both domestically and internationally. The missile test was an act of defiance, meant to prove his strength. The missile launch set the tone for many of Kim Jong-il's international relationships. As North Korea retreated further and further from the globalism that South Korea was embracing, Kim Jong-il became more obsessed with presenting an image of strength. If his people knew the economic and social developments taking place just a few miles across the border, they would have plenty of doubts about their own situation. At the turn of the millennium, South Korea was becoming a premier exporter of computer technology and electronics. Capitalism was thriving, and the quality of life was consistently rising. Meanwhile, North Koreans still used ration cards for basic supplies. In 2003, five years after the famine was considered over, a full third of the population still relied on international aid for food. Of course, Kim Jong-il wasn't living like a peasant. He hosted lavish parties and imported expensive foreign foods and the chefs to prepare them. One chef reported that every now and then a kind of courier would show up from some corner of the world. I saw him twice unloading two enormous boxes of 20 very costly French cheeses and one box of prized French wines. Two separate chefs were hired simply to make pizza for Kim Jong-il. 
One of them, Hermano Ferlanis, published his story in 2004, offering a rare first-hand account of the cultish following the dictator imposed. Ferlanis wrote, I became aware of an unusual detail. Everybody, without exception, male and female, young and old alike, absolutely everyone in North Korea was wearing a little pin on the left side of their chest above the heart with a portrait of the dear leader. Like all foreign visitors, Ferlanis experienced North Korea with an assigned guide. Foreigners were shown only authorized places, and unsightly truths were hidden from view, including the poor and sick. Their government cars never drove past any building that wasn't shiny and new. It seemed like the guides were worried that visitors could reveal the truth about North Korea to the world. But in fact, the opposite was true. Visitors might reveal the truth about the world to North Koreans. This was more dangerous than anything to the regime. Kim Jong-il's entire power complex relied on an allegiance to communism and maintaining the cult of personality his father had established to endear himself to the people. The badges of loyalty, the monuments, and the ceaseless publications devoted to the dear leader all implied Kim Jong-il was above criticism. No one knew that at his core, he was a hypocrite. Paying a personal pizza chef while a third of his country went hungry was but one of Kim Jong-il's many hypocrisies. For most of his life, he had a penchant for expensive foreign liquor, especially cognac. Even after doctors told him to stop drinking to save his liver, Jong-il kept importing plenty of alcohol for his parties. He also supplied women. North Korean defectors have reported that his parties often featured a bevy of female entertainment called the Joy Division, whose members were allegedly selected from high schools during the summers. However, there was very little sexual behavior allowed at these parties. In one instance, Kim Jong-il ordered a group of five girls to strip off their clothes. Then he told the party guests, mostly high-ranking officials and generals, to dance with them. But he also gave a stern warning and said, don't touch. Kim Jong-il's instruction had nothing to do with fidelity. He was a proven philanderer, bearing several children with multiple women. Instead, keeping women but disallowing his men to touch them was a simple power move. The dissonance of a communist dictator enjoying benefits that are forbidden to his citizens is not a novel concept. What Kim Jong-il mastered better than any other dictator, though, was the isolation of his people from any outside influence. And this isolation was wholly necessary. A prime counterexample to the austerity of communism was sitting just across the southern border. The DMZ was only four kilometers wide, but South Korea might as well have been a different continent. North Koreans weren't allowed to travel outside the country, with very few exceptions. So few that Kim Jong-il always knew specifically who was out of the country at any given time. Even within the country, moving between regions often required permits and passing at least one military checkpoint. And North Koreans were not only kept physically isolated, but mentally as well. As the dot-com boom of the early 2000s made the internet a necessity for everyday life, North Koreans had no connections at all. 
Radio and television were still the primary sources of information, and all broadcasts were government-controlled. Radios were programmed to only receive the sanctioned frequencies, and just in case anyone got hold of their own radio scanner, signal jammers played white noise on other frequencies to block any foreign transmissions. With no news of the outside world, North Koreans had no comparisons to judge their own circumstances. They only knew what Kim Jong-il told them. Of course, Kim Jong-il once again exempted himself from this standard he set for his own people. Foreign diplomats often commented on how knowledgeable he was about current affairs, foreign policies, and global markets, especially in South Korea. Rumors held that he received international newspapers and internet, as well as very frequent reports from North Korea's few embassies overseas. The extent of his knowledge became evident during an almost month-long train tour through Russia in 2001. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, the relationship between Russia and North Korea had weakened. To build better ties with his now-democratic ally, Kim Jong-il decided to make the long trans-Siberian train ride to meet Vladimir Putin. The train was also necessary because he refused to travel by aircraft, which he claimed was due to security reasons, but in fact was rooted in a deep-seated fear of flying. Instead, all of his international visits, which were almost exclusively to China and former Soviet nations, were taken on a personal armored train, or rather six of them, with a total of 90 rail cars. South Korean intelligence reported that Kim Jong-il always traveled with a retinue of three complete trains, even within North Korea's borders. The first train scoped the tracks ahead for safety and clearance. Bringing up the rear was another train filled with security personnel and Kim Jong-il's entourage of generals and personal servants. The armored train carrying Kim Jong-il himself traveled between the other two. His rail cars were equipped with state-of-the-art communications gear and lavish comforts, including a small movie theater worthy of the film aficionado. During his Russian tour, Kim Jong-il was accompanied by Konstantin Pulikovsky, a special representative of President Putin. Pulikovsky said that Kim Jong-il had a powerful aura and his questions clearly indicated that he knew virtually everything about the situation in Russia. When they reached Moscow, Putin invited Kim Jong-il to his personal apartment in the Kremlin for lunch. It was a spur-of-the-moment invitation that had lasting ramifications for their relationship. Pulikovsky said it was a simple home-cooked meal. Before then, Kim had seemed reluctant to show emotion. After lunch with Putin, he was more open, trusting, and genial. Putin supposedly liked Kim Jong-il a great deal and found him humorous and educated. The two men got along famously. Kim Jong-il even said, if people act like diplomats when they're with me, I also become a diplomat. Putin was honest with me and I bared my soul to him. This was a strange development for such an isolated leader. His 2001 Russia visit revealed how lonely his life must have been as a dictator. Even though he was surrounded by an enormous entourage, he was without any real emotional connection. Kim Jong-il knew the adoration of his people was false. Shin Sang-ok, 
the kidnapped South Korean movie director, told a story about visiting a North Korean movie studio one day with Kim Jong-il. A group of screaming women emerged from one of the movie sets and waved at the dear leader. While waving back, Kim Jong-il turned to Shin and said, It's fake. Shin remembered a distinct look of embarrassment on the dictator's face. He seemed to know the director could see through a performance. On another occasion, Kim Jong-il was watching television with his family when a propaganda message appeared featuring smiling, happy children. He lamented how artificial their smiles looked. He said, If I tell them to tone down the artificiality, they will go completely in the opposite direction and find the most dirty children in rags. Kim Jong-il was caught in a dilemma of his own creation, between the truth of his country and the narrative he'd written for it. Even he wasn't fooled by his own propaganda. The truth was that North Korea was slipping farther and farther behind the rest of the world. But while his country slowly rotted, Kim Jong-il didn't miss an opportunity to enrich himself with outside investments. When the South Korean conglomerate Hyundai approached him about creating a free economic zone in North Korea's territory, he jumped at the chance. The investment would bring more money into Kim Jong-il's treasury, which meant more cash at his disposal. To that end, the avowed communist dictator could work with the capitalist pigs he vilified. But his people knew little of the southern economy, including the massive wealth of Hyundai, which meant they also didn't know the extent to which Kim Jong-il was investing with his sworn enemy. Enemies or not, Kim Jong-il still maintained open relations with his neighbors. Despite all the national commitment to self-reliance, the country couldn't survive without imports, mostly from China and South Korea. Yet Kim Jong-il's propaganda downplayed the national reliance on foreign trade. One example was the national power grid, which was supplied by a series of generator plants. Most of the parts were manufactured and purchased overseas, but shipped into North Korea unassembled so they could be completed with locally made materials. This way, Kim Jong-il could claim North Korea's power was wholly self-sufficient. The truth was, North Korea didn't even have the resources to keep the power plants running. One of the older plants used equipment that had been bought from the Soviets. By the 2000s, those Soviet factories were long defunct, and North Korea didn't have the supplies or technologies to make repairs on their own. So the plant stayed crippled for years, only able to operate at a fraction of its full capacity. This was another example of the hidden truth behind the propaganda. North Korea's infrastructure was dilapidated and crumbling no matter how much Kim Jong-il told his people otherwise. And outside the country, the truth was finally becoming clear. More defectors were leaving North Korea than ever before. They spoke of a weakening nation and a tyrant who was determined to protect his dynasty at all costs. Coming up, Kim Jong-il threatens the rest of the world as the terrible circumstances in North Korea are publicized. Now back to the story. By 2008, Kim Jong-il was the isolated leader of an insulated and obsolete country. The country was so well hidden that the world only caught glimpses of the truth from those who defected. Defections were nothing new. 
In fact, since the end of the Korean War in 1953, over 100,000 North Koreans had fled to China, Russia, and South Korea. Some sources say that number could be as high as a quarter million. Crossing the DMZ is suicidal, as there are landmines and North Korean soldiers stationed every few meters with orders to shoot defectors on sight. However, desperate North Koreans managed to make it out through other routes. The most popular is over the mountains into China. This is dangerous, however, because if they're caught along the border, they'll be captured and sent to a labor camp. Another common escape is on fishing trawlers headed to South Korean ports. Some even reach Japan. The final destination is usually South Korea. It's enshrined in South Korea's constitution that North Koreans are considered full citizens in the South. That means they won't be deported back to the North, which often happens to defectors found living in China. The South receives so many defectors annually that it created a national office to help them resettle and integrate into society. The records from South Korea's office during the later 2000s showed a significant spike in defections after 2008. Something was clearly happening on the other side of the DMZ. Defectors spoke of sprawling prison camps and torture. Some of their stories dated back several decades, but the most recent tales demonstrated that little had changed over time. Kim Jong-il simply imprisoned his opposition and anyone who tried to flee his regime. There were allegedly five enormous labor camps in the northern mountains, holding over 200,000 prisoners. Escapees found trying to reach China were repatriated to the camps. Torture and executions were common. But beyond the gulags, defectors also spoke of a country on a downward spiral. Food shortages were still common, and the society was still wholly militarized. Most alarming of all, Kim Jong-il had retreated from public life. Kim Jong-il had suffered a stroke in 2008, the stories told. After that, he was rarely seen anywhere in Pyongyang. So why the crackdown on defectors? Why attack the South Korean Navy? The answer was the same as it had been for years. When Kim Jong-il felt weakened, he turned to his army and propaganda to reinforce his power. But all the power in the world couldn't make him healthy again. Some officials even whispered that he could be near death. But the tyrant was still quite alive. To dispel rumors of his decline, Kim Jong-il took strident action to fix the weak economy. In 2009, he ordered a reform of North Korea's currency, the won, in an attempt to bolster its value. A currency reform was a popular communist technique to punish capitalist activities by literally changing the type of money the country used, sometimes overnight. Stalin himself had used a similar tactic after World War II, and Kim Jong-il had always followed Stalin's example. Unfortunately, Kim Jong-il had missed the lesson on the collapse of the Soviet Union, and he tried the same technique that had doomed them. He had announced that on November 30th, 2009, at 11 a.m., two zeros would be removed from the value of the North Korean won, and all old banknotes would be taken out of circulation. Thus, 100 won would buy the same as 10,000 won did the day before and only with the new bills. The people had one week to trade in their cash savings for the new currency. 
Unsurprisingly, the North Korean economy was thrown into chaos overnight. Inflation skyrocketed. Anyone with significant cash holdings suddenly risked losing everything. It appeared Kim Jong-il's understanding of economics was not as comprehensive as he thought. Many North Koreans were angry and distraught at the overnight shakeup, and public discontent spread rapidly. Within the next few months, in the spring of 2010, rumors began in South Korea that the Northern Communist state was on the brink of collapse. The effect of the currency reform was almost worse than the famine. Angry people talked where starving ones didn't. In an unbelievable change of pace, North Koreans began expressing their discontent to each other on the street and occasionally to foreign visitors. The sudden economic losses caused by one man's whim exposed how shoddy their country's communist economy had always been. Once the people questioned communism, they questioned everything. Kim Jong-il's hold over his people was slipping, and the cult of personality and propaganda was no longer enough to convince them that everything about their country was perfect. He needed a distraction from the economic downfall. He needed the people to be afraid again. So he attacked a South Korean warship that he claimed was invading North Korean waters. The torpedo attack on the Navy ship Chonan in March 2010 spawned a serious international backlash. The rumors made it clear that Kim Jong-il's health was declining. His doctors had long ago told him to quit drinking, but he had been downing red burgundy wine daily until his stroke in 2008. He was rumored to be diabetic and suffering from a loss of motor skills. Kim Jong-il was no longer the strong, steadfast dictator. He was a weakened 70-year-old man who refused to admit any health issues, much less address them. Going into 2011, his concerns turned to protecting the family dynasty, just as his father had. Though he never would admit it, and likely didn't even recognize his own incompetence, Kim Jong-il had brought North Korea to the brink of extinction. His reign had brought a slow but unstoppable decline to the country's economy, health, and safety. He had walled off his nation, and now it was dying, which meant the next leader would have to save the country from Kim Jong-il's failures. His successor would have to be nothing short of a miracle worker. A weak leader would send North Korea into revolution. Making the correct choice was imperative. Kim Jong-il had three sons, Jong-nam, Jong-chul, and Jong-un. Jong-nam, the oldest, was publicly critical of North Korea and lived abroad. He lost favor with his father after an embarrassing incident in 2001 when he was caught trying to visit Tokyo Disneyland with a false passport. The second oldest son, Jang Chul, was regarded as weak and effeminate. Allegedly as a child, he'd written a poem that said his perfect world would be a peaceful one with no weapons or bombs. He was out of the question. That left Jang Un. Kim Jong-un was only 26 years old and had little interest in anything except for basketball. But he'd inherited his father's tough disposition. If any of the sons could fill Kim Jong-il's shoes, it was him. The choice had been made by September 2010. North Korea would one day be led by Kim Jong-un. 
but neither Kim Jong-il nor his son could have known just how soon that day would come. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll hear about the ascension of Kim Jong-un and how he shifted North Korea's reputation on the world stage. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>